Business Anxiously with Amy and Lisa. Now here are your hosts, Amy and Lisa. And I'm Amy, and this is Anxiously, the podcast where we talk about all the things that make us anxious. So, Amy, how are you doing today? I am exhausted. Oh, no, why? Well, I fell down an internet rabbit hole and stayed up until the ungodly hours of the morning. It started because I just decided to check my email before bed, which should be a normal thing to do, but it led to me reading Wikipedia articles about the most haunted cities in America, (laughs) then following some Instagram influencer and, like, looking at pictures of what she had for lunch that day. So it was a a big uh, time suck. And it got me thinking about the internet and its role in our lives. And one thing I thought about was, Lisa, you were an early adopter of hating on the internet. Like, as long as I've known you, which is a really long time, you, unlike other people in our generation and younger, were never quite, like, on board with social media and all that stuff. I am an early adopter. (laughs) My husband has always called me Magneto because I just have this very oppositional relationship to technology and have this sort of uncanny ability to break it wherever I go. I've always identified as as a Luddite of sorts. I've sort of, I don't know, adopted like an elderly person's affinity for (laughs) websites like Yahoo News when I am on the internet, which you tease me about to no end. I intuitively sort of felt like there's something not very human about it. I feel like I am a total, total sucker for it. Like, I remember. So we're of a generation that we had analog childhoods and teenhoods. Like, the internet really came in for us, probably for both of us when we were in college, right? And I remember feeling like, this is the greatest thing ever. Like, I remember sitting in my dorm room and, like, surfing the net, as we called it back then, (laughs) in the late 90s, and just loving it. Like, I was just hooked right away. And that has never really gone away for me. Like, I love all my apps. You know, now I'm on my phone all the time. It used to be computer. Now it's phone. But it takes a toll. And there's this fear that if I'm not constantly checking, you know, Instagram, Twitter, email, what have you, I'm going to miss out on something really big. I do get all my news from social media, which I think is more and more the norm nowadays. Mm -hmm. This need to feel plugged in, whatever that might mean, drives us. But there's this huge cost. You know, on one hand, I love not being super present on social media, but then I feel really anxious because I miss out. I don't find out about things that are going on in people's lives. Like when we were kids, I remember the phone screwed into the kitchen wall with the long curly cord that, you know, I would take and I would like wrap around three corners to get away from my family into another room. And I would talk on the phone with my friends and we would talk for hours. We would just like be on the phone and watch TV shows together. And I don't know, it felt very human and connected. And I don't get that sense from social media, but at the same time, like these same people from my childhood who I don't talk to on the phone anymore, I'm missing out on big moments in their lives because I don't look at Facebook. It is hilarious. There have been times where you've said to me, Amy, how do you make a tweet? And I, it's <laughs> hilarious. And I love I love that. You know, I'm here to like fill you in on the stuff, I guess. I know. Thank goodness for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's this sort of terrible like cycle, I feel like, of needing to be in the know, going on there, but then feeling worse afterwards. Do you think that feeling worse is about 
knowing that you're getting caught up in sort of these echo chambers, which the internet seems so good at dividing people into. and Especially on Twitter, it's it's become so divisive. And obviously people feel freer behind their avatars and behind their screens to be cruel and say things they would never say in real life. And yeah, I think it creates this feeling of alienation. There's something so dehumanizing about it. Yeah, and it, isn't it ironic, as Alanis Morissette said, because <laughs> the whole point of the internet was to connect us more. And I was thinking about how the internet in some ways has given us so much more time in the sense of the convenience of it. We can order food at the press of a button, but it also sucks up time and robs us of time and human connection. Right. We used to keep a collection of menus here so we could order out and we would have to call the restaurant and order the food. And as soon as the Seamless app became available, like it was so much easier to just not have to talk to a person. And then since the pandemic started, we started ordering wine from our local wine store instead of actually walking into the shop. And that entails calling on the phone and speaking to a person. And I met this gentleman who works at the store named Robert, who's lovely. And we've just like gotten to know each other. And he always sends me the most interesting things. He knows what I like. And it's just been like, a very wonderful touch of humanity. You actually call another. <laughs> no, this is how scary that this is like strange to me now. And, and I feel like every time before I, I pick up the phone, I feel this pit in my stomach of resistance. Like I don't want to talk to another person. I don't want to do the work that that entails. And then when I, I do it, then it's amazing. And it's so nice to speak to another human being. Yeah, no, and it's so funny because I do feel like the internet in some ways has allowed us to avoid the people who might annoy us or ramble on too long or whatever. Like, the people that you just bump into in the world and communities, there's a huge loss there. Like, in some ways, it's it's nice and, and convenient to avoid that stuff. But as you were saying, it's, it's human. <laughs> like, yeah. I, and I think, like, losing that diversity of relationships and perspectives is where the poorer for it. There's something very enriching about having to encounter people that you don't agree with. Yeah. And you don't even necessarily like so much, but who are part of your community and they're yours. Like, they're your jerks. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. It's um, something else I find myself doing, which is disturbing. And I don't know if you do this, too. Walking down the street, I'll be looking at my phone. I don't look around at the world, which to me, that in some ways is the most upsetting thing because it's like, I think I used to gain a lot from like looking around and I don't as much anymore. Like the intro, it has this, it, it's totally a drug. It really is. It has this addictive hold on me that I'm out on the street and yet I'm losing that. I noticed the other day I was FaceTiming with my mom and I found myself while FaceTiming with her switching to another app to check my email or something or some notification. And that was really upsetting. I'm like, this is like, you know, precious time with my mom. But it's hard because everything's now on the same platform. Right. It's hard to like tear away from email and texting. You know, I'm not on Facebook, but I, I do text with my friends and my family and I can't stop looking at my work emails. It's bad. And and my kids notice it. And that's really mm. where I'm trying to curb myself so that I'm not on the phone as much when I'm spending time with them. Because spending time with them should be and is precious. Yeah. Anyway, how are we going to fix all this, Amy? <laughs> well, luckily, we have someone, a fabulous guest today. 
to help us talk through some of this stuff. Yes, we do, thankfully. Andrew Morantz writes for The New Yorker about technology, politics, and the way they intersect. He's the author of Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. And now here's our conversation with Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to Anxiously. Thank you for having me. So we're talking today about the internet. I've heard of it. Small little topic, very narrow. So Lisa and I were talking about how when the internet was first coming onto the scene in a mainstream way, it was really exciting and fun and thrilling. But now, a days in 2021, why does the internet not seem fun anymore? Like, it's become kind of like a toxic, <laughs> difficult place. Yeah, it was kind of an unexpected twist there where it seemed like it was all just going to be like, you can stay in touch with your long lost relatives and discover cool facts about sharks or whatever. And then it was like, oh, there's going to be Nazis here. <laughs> you know, it's funny because when you look back now, you can kind of see the toxic prehistory kind of in retrospect in a way that you couldn't really see it at the time. So like Facebook happened while I was in college. And I remember everybody was like, this is going to be so fun. It's like a new way to flirt with people, whatever. And then immediately it started being like, oh, there's going to be some really bad stuff that's associated with this too. I was talking to some friends recently and they were like, do you remember how there used to be this um, campus website where you would find out like where there would be events with free food that day or where there was going to be a concert in town or whatever? It was like a bulletin board, basically. And even that, there would be like trolls and anonymous people in the comments saying hate speechy stuff and whatever. But at the time, you don't really notice it because it's like this fun new thing. And then now you look back on it and you're like, oh, the seeds of this were kind of always there. And we were just, I don't know if it's like how we approach novel things that we're, we'd rather see the bright side. We'd rather sort of imagine the hopeful possibilities. But I feel like the seeds of both were always there. This is not anything new. For your book, you spent time embedded with two different communities. The first was the Silicon Valley, people who created the technologies that are shaping so much of our lives. And then the second group was the trolls and conspiracy theorists and white supremacists that you called the gate crashers. And these two communities disavow each other, but they seem to have this kind of creepy symbiosis can you have one without the other? I mean, so to be clear, there have always been racists and misogynists and general issue assholes in the world. But you can't really have one without the other in the sense that they didn't have the scale and scope of distribution power that they do now. Like take trolling as an example. It's one thing to just kind of be a jerk standing on a soapbox somewhere. But that's not really being a troll in the same sense. To be a troll, you need to have like a mass media. And it's even more effective if instead of just a mass media that's sort of one person transmitting to many people, you know, like a radio demagogue or a TV demagogue, if you have this interactive dynamic happening where it's like a video game and you get points for riling people up. It's one thing to be Father Coughlin or someone in a kind of mass medium. It's another thing to be like, if I say this particular kind of provocative or mean or racist thing, I will get 57 more points than the next guy. Like, we always worry that we're going to be too critical sort of reflexively of any new medium and like, we're going to be Luddites and we're going to be like, oh no, the telegraph, it's going to ruin society. But like, I do think that social media is particularly dangerous in the way that it plays on our 
limbic system. Like it just, it literally directly quantifiably incentivizes the worst part of our behavior. That is terrifying. And it's so true. I mean, I feel it in myself. It's like total dopamine hits. Like, you know, if you get those likes and you get, you know, the comments. I mean, what's really scary about it is, of course, right, there's a, there's the trolls and they say, you know, don't feed the trolls, ignore the trolls and they'll go away. But then we see something like the Capitol insurrection, for example. And we're starting more and more to see people getting radicalized in different ways because of the internet, because of social media. That's leading to real-world seismic events. Why is it so potent, especially to these types of people? What's kind of going on there? It is kind of nice to think that we can just say, don't feed the trolls, and that'll be the end of it. But it's never been like a perfect one-size-fits-all kind of solution because you can literally troll your way into the White House, Right. We know that now. So you can't to say don't feed the trolls like and yeah, one of the lessons we can learn from that is not to give undue attention to someone whose only skill is riling people up and, and you know, saying provocative things. On the other hand, I sort of wrestle with this in my book to sort of say trolls set this ingenious trap where on the one hand, any attention you give them is fuel, even if it's negative attention. On the other hand, if you never rebuke them, then they just act like they are running things. So there is no perfect solution. There's always this kind of aspect where people are kind of fighting the last war. So they'll overcorrect for Trump by being like, well, now we have to just ignore Marjorie Taylor Greene and pretend like she doesn't exist. And it's like, that doesn't really work either because she's in Congress. She has power. You can't just deny that she's there, right? So you can't actually like approach it with these bumper sticker solutions and expect them to work in every case. It's actually just a much trickier ethical dilemma than that. But what is it about the internet, do you think, that's attracting, I don't know what you want to call it, like alienated, and I don't want to say it's only men, obviously it's not, but, you know, that sort of stereotype of the <laughs> the alienated man. It's a lot of men. Yeah, I mean, what, what, do you, what do you think is going on there? When I went into these worlds and kind of embedded myself, because I really wanted to see not only like the psychological profile of who these people are, but also just the kind of really sit there and see how it works, like sit at someone's elbow and be like, okay, how do you use just these basic tools at your disposal to corrode democracy? And there were actually a lot of women and gay people and people of color. And I spent a lot of time with a neo-Nazi who was married to a Jewish woman. And I spent a lot of time with a guy who was married to a woman of Iranian descent who's parents were Muslim. And so it's never exactly what you think it's going to be, to your point about stereotypes. But I often found myself returning to this analogy of hosting a party. If you're starting a social network, you're not exactly a government. You're not exactly a rule keeper. It's more like you're like setting a tone, right? So it's like, who do you let in? Who do you not let in? Do you like serve grain alcohol or do you serve Prosecco? Like, you know, you're setting a tone. And so then that becomes like a cultural signifier that people pick up on. So that then when they start like setting couches on fire, it's like, oh, maybe that had something to do with like the social expectations I was setting at my party. Because without that, we tend to be like, well, let's just act like we do, you know, with the First Amendment and like use all these kind of analogies. But those are just the wrong analogies. So much of what is happening on the big platforms like Facebook, 
and Twitter is really controlled by algorithms, right, that are designed by people. So it, there is a, a formulation to it. Yeah. Well, so it's complicated. The algorithms are definitely designed by people, but they're also, at this point, they involve a lot of machine learning. And there's a certain like black box element to that where even the people who designed the neural net might not really understand how it works, in a sense, which is itself kind of scary. Yeah. yeah. But um, to your point about people being in charge, not only do the people make the algorithms, but the people also oversee every aspect of the algorithm, right? It's not just on autopilot. You know, the algorithms will sort things, but the things that are being sorted are according to a set of rules that humans have come up with. So there's no pure neutrality. There's no, like people will sometimes say, you know, should Facebook censor things or not? Or should, you know, should Twitter be in the business of being an arbiter of truth or not? And those are just false choices. They're an arbiter right now. They have rules, they make choices, they curate things, they algorithmically sort things. Like, that's happening. So there, so I think people sometimes get a little tripped up on like, well, I just want things to be unencumbered and free and I don't want people stepping between me and pure information. It's like, that ship sailed a long time ago. When you signed up for someone's service, you signed up for their version of a curation. So I watched that movie, The Social Dilemma, and it leads you to believe that there are engineers at work trying to ensure that people are really addicted to these platforms. And like Amy had said, getting sort of dopamine hits from earning those likes or getting eyes on their pictures of their food. It's creepy. It's creepy, but it's also like, how else did we think this worked? It's a company that profits from people spending more time on their platform. So obviously... If these are the biggest and most profitable companies in the world that are hiring some of the cleverest engineers in the world, what did we think they were doing exactly, if not trying to get us to spend as much time on the platforms as possible? It's like if you made a documentary about like Doritos and they were like, they have scientists that are trying to make them really delicious and crispy. Like, yeah, that's that's what they do. Good point. <laughs> and then they make you fat. Like, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's not like it's not like we don't know how these things work. It's just that somehow when it's in the realm of speech or ideas— we have this like bizarre, abstract, exceptionalist thing. Like that's speech, so we can't regulate it and we can't think about how to make the outcomes better. But like, we don't take that individual responsibility approach to anything else. It would be bizarre if somebody was like, yes, you know, food deserts are bad, but like you really need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and like go walk 10 miles to the nearest farmer's market. I mean, some people some people do say that. Yeah, but it's stupid. Like, <laughs> no, you know it's, how it's to... not good. Yeah. Yeah. For me too, like the dopamine, like it's it's about the likes and the attention, but it's also about seeing the new content, like the constantly refreshing new endless loop of content. Like it's wild. Like there's really nothing else like that. Well, those are all very conscious design choices. I mean, mm -hmm. those are, there was a guy, BJ Fogg, who taught at Stanford, who I believe still does teach at Stanford, he had a phrase for it, like addictive design or some, you know, like, and he would teach you, like, if you make the mechanics such that you pull down on it and there's like a little tug and then it kind of bounces back up and it gives you like a half second delay and there's like random assortments of rewards so that you don't get all your rewards right away, but they're kind of spaced out. I mean, it's just basic lab rat stuff. <laughs> Great. <laughs> it's so funny. And it's like, before you joined us, Andrew, Amy, you hearken back to how we used to call it surfing the web, which sounds so easy breezy, like <laughs> the net, the net. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then it took a turn. Yeah. Yeah, it took a turn. So we know that it's so easy for these 
really nefarious communities to come together online. Do you think it's possible for good communities to come together on online and and prosper like Pinterest or the knitting community Ravelry? It happens all the time. And just because I wrote a book called Antisocial <laughs> doesn't mean that this is just my diatribe against all forms of social interaction via pixels. Like I wrote a book called Antisocial because I think for a decade we've only been focusing on the pro-social sides of social media. And there needed to be a corrective that was obviously not just me, but many people saying, okay, there's another side to this coin. But there certainly is a pro-social side to this stuff. Some of it is, you know, like the things you mentioned, it's just like having spaces that are mostly women. (laughs) Honestly, like that tends to help. And that kind of happens by accident. Like Pinterest was an example I used in the book of like a space that generally seems to be pretty fine. And No one can really figure out a reason for that other than the fact that it's mostly female. That's the only explanation I've ever seen. So interesting. Yeah, it's not like there aren't other image-based services that just immediately go to shit. There are obviously a lot of complicated dynamics. I mean, just like designing a living space and figuring out how people are going to, you know, if you design a door to the kitchen that is on the wrong side, then people won't really find it. And if you have a party, people won't end up in the kitchen. Like there are these design choices that you make in this very kind of random, innocent way, very, very early on, when you're just in startup bootstrap mode, that then have these enormous downstream effects. So yes, it's totally possible. It happens all the time. It happens every day. I'm not a like throw your phone in the river kind of person. I just think that when the downsides are so pronounced, even if it's only 5149 or 5545, you still need to clean it up. You still need to figure it out. So it doesn't have to be 100% bad in order to say like, Let's figure out how to get the rampant stuff under control. Imagine the president calls you up one day and is like, Andrew, you can be the internet czar. You have unlimited powers to change or tweak how we use the internet, what the internet looks like. What do you do? Okay, so if we take the government First Amendment stuff out of it, And if I were to just say, like, I'm the czar of the private sector internet, I think the number one thing to do is to stop making the lifeblood of virality emotional engagement. If emotional engagement is the coin of the realm, then you're kind of just going to be in trouble no matter what other tweaks you make. So what I mean by that is, are you smashing the like button? Are you commenting? Did you stop your swiping for long enough to look at the image? The things that get engagement are the things that go viral. And it's easier to get engagement by making people feel certain specific emotions, what they call activating emotions. And a lot of those activating emotions are kind of nice and fuzzy, but some of them, actually a majority of them, are like fear or disgust or loathing or xenophobia or whatever. So right away, you've set up a system where it's kind of designed to tend toward these outcomes. So that would be the thing. I would say, okay, if you want to have algorithms, you got to have algorithms that are built around something other than getting people's blood boiling and getting people emotionally engaged so that they fight back. And that's doable. It's just, it would probably be less profitable. And so they don't want to do it. This is not a thing that we can necessarily legislate or regulate our way out of. I think it can help, but I think it's going to be actually a bigger cultural shift than that. This is not usually like a hopeful analogy, but in a way I find it helpful to refer to climate change as the analogy because It's another realm where we've made a lot of individual human decisions that seemed innocent at the time, but that turn out in retrospect to be pretty obviously destructive. 
And now we have to figure out how to dig ourselves out. And government regulation can help with that. But I actually think a lot of it is going to be just like literally rebuilding a new infrastructure. I think we're in in a deep informational crisis. And the way out is to rebuild a new internet, which is not going to be easy. One of the tricky parts of this and one of the scary parts of this is that the things that are better for us in some like wholesome, healthy sense are not always the things that we choose when our preferences are revealed in the marketplace. We don't eat kale chips. We eat Doritos. That's what we do. Even if someone built a better internet, I don't know that it would actually be solvent. In this reality that we live in, we're trying to find ways to feel better about the internet and to manage our time on there and our anxiety around it. So you're a writer and a journalist. You're obviously online a lot anyway. How do you manage your time? How do you keep yourself from falling down rabbit holes? Do you have any tips for us and for listeners? Well, falling down rabbit holes is sometimes part of my job. But when I'm not doing it on purpose, you can do all the normal things that you do with any other addictive thing, right? You can kind of tie yourself to the mast in various ways. You can say, okay, I'm going to open this browser tab, but I'm going to literally set a timer and just only be on there for 10 minutes. But then I also think that you can, like anything else, you can kind of interrogate what about this activity is attracting you to it. Like, why do I find myself being, you know, just noticing the patterns. Like, oh, like I reflexively open this tab whenever I feel anxious about so-and-so. See the little tip of the hat to your podcast? (laughs) Like I've noticed, you mentioned I'm a writer. I've noticed that I get very, very interested in cleaning the kitchen or making myself food whenever I have like a really tough paragraph that I have to write. And I'm suddenly like, oh, well, I have to, it's lunchtime. I have to go eat. And then I'm like, oh, I literally like stood up and went to the kitchen before I even completed the thought. The internet makes it even easier to do that because you don't even have to stand up. So a lot of it just starts with noticing in a very different way. That's why I was interested in doing the reporting I did, because I think noticing the patterns is the first step to seeing through them, which is the first step to breaking them. So Andrew, I have to ask, because we are two Jewish women, it's very hard to miss the fact that so much of the internet conspiracy theories that are circulating are about Jews. Why is that? Why does this brand new technology get so inundated with this very ancient form of hatred? Yeah, I was very surprised by how much of this stuff was centered around Jews and anti-Semitism. I couldn't believe it. When I first started this project, I thought, you know, it's the 21st century. Like, there's going to be a lot of Islamophobia. There's going to be a lot of transphobia. Like, and then I was like, oh, you guys are just literally reading Mein Kampf or like Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Like, first of all, that's super not original. And second, why? Why is this so... Because I didn't think... I, I thought of myself as oh, I'm going to go embark on this as like a white male reporter who's going to like use those characteristics to try to like do things that some of my colleagues cannot. The fact that I was Jewish didn't even enter into my calculation at all. And then I started reporting on this stuff and I encountered people who were like really worried about the fact that I was Jewish or they were like professional anti-Semites for a living and they couldn't even tell that I was Jewish. And I would be like, come on, man, like, this is your job. You had one job and you can't, your Judar is broken. Like on me, I'm not even, I've written for Tablet Magazine. Like you just have to Google me or just like look at my name or like, look, I don't know. It seems like you should be able to crack that one. But um, it's a very long discussion. But I think that there are superficial ways to look at it, which is just like, there's kind of prime mover effects. Like the thing that happened before is the thing that's likely to happen again. So if you, if you look back and see, 
oh, people have always been telling stories about the Jews, then you kind of go like, oh, there must be something to it. There's also, Jews are a weird fact. Like the fact of the persistence of the Jewish people and the overrepresentation of Jewish people in many fields of life, like those are just weird things that are, that are, there are explanations for them, but the explanations require a lot of patience and require you like know things about history and anthropology and stuff that it's just much easier to be like, oh, it's a conspiracy. That's interesting that you say you were surprised by it. I feel like I, that's like so sweet. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my sweet summer child. Yeah, I feel like I am like, of course, I mean, again, I am descendant of Holocaust survivors. So it's like, I'm surprised there's not more. I don't know. But again, I haven't done yeah. the deep dive into the bowels of, of the hate internet. So I'm sure it's it's horrific. I mean, you know, I was expecting, I guess, like dog whistly stuff, like, talking about rootless cosmopolitan elites or whatever. <laughs> but like I, part of the book was hanging out with this guy who grew up in bucolic progressive New York suburbs and like hanging out with half of his friends were Jewish. The people he dated were Jewish. And then through a series of ideological trips down various darker and darker rabbit holes, he ends up giving a speech next to David Duke in Charlottesville and just being like full on, getting his propaganda tips from Mein Kampf. And so I was fascinated by the puzzle of like how that happens. It's a whole narrative progression. And obviously the reason I was doing that is because it's not just that one guy. That's It's a thing. They call it the libertarian to alt-right pipeline. It's like a pathway that a lot of people go down. But it is it is remarkable how often the Jews are like the center of the cosmology. I wondered if you have any advice or strategies that you could give us for feeling less anxious about the internet. I mean... Log off, <laughs> just but even just logging off for like half an hour is a good, I mean, it's pretty rare that people actually even turn off their computer ever or turn off their phone even for an hour, but it's very refreshing. It's worth trying. I'm scared to turn off my phone in case somebody calls with an emergency, but that's my own. That's my own. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you do it for an hour, like if you're, if you're, especially if you're with the person who's most likely to be calling you anyway. I feel like when I'm with my wife and kids, I'm like, okay, here's like 90% of the world of emergencies that might even happen. Let's just turn <laughs> off our phone. And and it really can just be for a little while. And then you're like, oh, this feels different. It's not like burning a hole in my pocket. I feel like um, Shabbat is a good idea. Like that, <laughs> It's a healthy uh, it's a good idea. thing to aim for. Yep. Yep. Unplugging for 25 hours. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. This was great. Thank you, guys. Wow, that was that was a lot. Yeah. I was really interested in the way he talked about how we just sort of have to reprogram ourselves sort of in the way that we've started thinking about the environment and and climate change. It was really interesting. Yeah, I like the idea that there can be these like cozy positive communities out there still. Like that's I'm going to cling to that and I'm going to try turning off my phone more. I think I'm going to try to do that more, too. I really, I have to um, look into my landline and make sure it still works. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that our the logo of our show is a landline. It's very fitting. Yes, it is fitting. So what are you doing uh, this week to feel a little bit less anxious? So I've been getting into, or back into, listening to records. And there's one record in particular that I always come back to. It's Van Morrison's 1968 album, Astral Weeks, which I 
I just love it. And I listen to it over and over and over. It makes everybody else in my family hate me, but I could <laughs> I could just listen to it endlessly and it makes me feel very calm. How about you? Oh, I love Van Morrison. Well, it's funny. I have a music-themed recommendation as well. Fittingly, though, it is not analog like your records. <laughs> it's very much on my phone, unfortunately, but it does bring me a lot of joy and peace. So I love Spotify. Spotify is a music streaming service app. You can you know download whichever songs you want onto it, but it has this great feature called Discover Weekly. Every Monday morning, Spotify itself basically curates a playlist for you, songs that they think you would like. And it's awesome. Like, there's stuff on there that I would have never heard of, never. And I think of myself as, like, a a big music fan. And I, you know, feel like I know a lot about music, but there's always new discoveries on there. And they, I mean, talk about the algorithm knowing you. Like, they really know (laughs) what to recommend that I'll love. It's, like, a really eclectic mix of oldies from the 60s and 70s and pop and hip-hop and French music. And it's, yeah, kind of everything I love. And you can also listen, if you're kind of connected to a friend on Spotify, you can listen to their Discovery Week. So it's a really fun, relaxing way to spend time and just listen to awesome music. So that makes me much less anxious when I can just listen to my Discover Weekly. So I highly recommend it. That's so nice. That does sound fun. I, however, will stick to analog and my records. I'm sure you're not surprised. That's fitting. That's so us. Yeah, that is so us. Well, are you feeling a little bit less anxious? Somewhat less anxious. How about you? You know, we're we're getting there. (laughs) I know you get it. (laughs) Yeah, I know you get it. And we hope you guys listening get it too. And we will talk to you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Anxiously is brought to you by Tablet Studios. Our producers are Josh Cross. Sarah Fredman Ader and Robert Scaramuccia. Our music is by the best band in the world, Low Cut Connie. Please rate and review us on iTunes so more people can find us. It really helps. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at anxiouslypod. And if you have feedback or questions about the show, email us at anxiously at tabletmag.com. For more information about the show, head to tabletmag.com slash anxiously and check out all of Tablet's podcasts at tabletmag.com slash podcasts. See you later. Amy, I have an update. I have to tell you. So we've been having lamb for Shabbat every week and I prepped it. I touched the raw lamb. I crushed the garlic and mushed it around with my hands and the herbs and I touched the raw meat. (laughs) Oh my God, that is amazing. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. It was really smelly, (laughs) but I felt like I had a big breakthrough and I wanted to share it. That is huge. And I applaud you with my raise. I raise a raw chicken cutlet in the air. (laughs) Thank you.